All right, on your handout, um, you'll see uh, categories, summary, which I'll read in a moment, and then familiar phrases, and then the man Amos, and the bottom of the handout is an outline of the book of Amos, which we will cover the, the book in an overview fashion going through in that order. Uh, I wanted to start with a few comments on the Minor Prophets as a whole, just a, a reminder again. Some quick reminders. So the authors of the last 12 books of the Old Testament are these uh, Minor Prophets, and the Minor Prophets hold together as one unit, one literary unit, which is why we're trying to give an overview of them all at once. Um, the, when I say that they're one unit, it means that the 12 speak with one voice, they speak with one message. They have this one main message from God to his people. And basically it's to repent and believe in the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's the message of judgment unto restoration. The other thing I wanted to make comment, one more comment about the Minor Prophets as a whole. These books are like a doctor visit. Not always comfortable, but healing and good for us. So if that helps you as we approach the book of Amos, you'll find some things like that today and next week in the book of Amos. So today and um, next Sunday, October 15, book of Amos. So I'd like to start by reading the summary there on the top of your handout. And then we'll start with the first few verses of Amos. I kind of want to give you an overview first before we read even the first few verses. This is written by me, uh, so... Hopefully it um, summarizes for you what Amos is all about, if you can do so in one paragraph. Summary. A former shepherd from Judah, the south, was called to warn the people of Israel, the north, with sermons, poems, and visions about their increasing wealth and decreasing passion for God. God, through Amos, reminded them that he had saved them from slavery, chapter 3, 1, and that they enjoyed a special relationship to God out of all the families of the earth, chapter 3, verse 2. Because of this, God questioned how they, as former slaves, could treat others like slaves. God called them to cease their fake worship, chapter 5, 5, to care for the poor, 5, 7, to seek him, 5, 6, and to seek decent living, 5, 14. Amos then saw three symbolic visions of the day of the Lord, locust, 7, 1, fire, 7, 4, and being swallowed like ripe fruit, 8.1, even with the pictures of coming judgment, God provided them hope of salvation with his renewed promises to restore the house of David, chapter 9.11, to rebuild God's family with people from all nations, chapter 9.12. So our God theater Amos presents three characteristics about God. One, God is just. He must confront evil, even if that evil is found in his own household of Judah or Israel. Number two, God is righteous. He requires righteousness from his people. And three, God is loyally compassionate. He retains his long-term purpose to restore his people and make them into a new family, which becomes, of course, the church. So now I'd like to read the first few verses of Amos. If you could open up to uh, the book of Amos. This is an overview, not a, a Bible study, not a sermon series, but just an overview to introduce you to the book. But I'd like to start with the uh, first five verses, Amos 1.1. 1, 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. 
two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord." Hopefully you're starting to realize in just five verses how foreign this is to us. There's a lot of place names we don't know. There's a lot of language that we're not necessarily picking up or grasping as easily as we might if we were reading the book of Philippians, right? You have to recognize just how different, how distant, and how foreign this all is to us. So hopefully this overview helps us. I wanted to go through some familiar phrases just so you can um, watch for those in our study. I'll try to focus on those just to give you the context of phrases you might have read or seen. Sometimes they're in American literature, English literature. Sometimes they are just pop up in our culture. And uh, I'll list them out here, but then not make a lot of comments on them until we go through the book. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Amos 3.3, they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, Amos 4.2. I'm not guaranteeing you've heard of these, but... A lot of them I think you have. Prepare to meet your God, Amos 4.12. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, Amos 5.19. Let justice roll down like waters, Amos 5.24. I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, Amos 7.8. I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, Amos 7.14. That'll make a quick comment. What he's saying is, I was just a shepherd, minding my own business. When God called me to be a prophet, I don't come from a long line of prophets. My dad and my granddad are not prophets. I just come because God sent me. I've got a message for you. Don't shoot the messengers way we might say it. Uh, I will send a famine of hearing the words of the Lord, Amos 8, 12. So that's familiar phrases. Then the man Amos. So let me talk a little bit about the man Amos, and I mean a little bit. <laughs> the man Amos, uh, first of all, the name. The name Amos uh, belongs to no one else in the Old Testament. Not to be confused with the father of Isaiah, if you'd like, you can go to Isaiah 1.1, a man named Amos, A-M-O-Z, a different name, different person. Only one named Amos in the Bible, so it's easy. Some prophets we get to know well by reading their own book or by reading in other places in the Bible. Not Amos. Tell me everything you know about Amos. That's what I thought. <laughs> All we know about the man Amos is what we've learned in the first verse. Amos 1.1, the words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. He was a shepherd. We know a little bit more from chapter 7, verse 14. He was a farmer. That's where he says, I was not no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman, a man with a herd or a flock, and a dresser of sycamore trees. So we could say he was a farmer and also took care of an orchard of fig trees. Uh, pruning, growing them. Verse uh, 15 of Amos 7, But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So he was a farmer, um, tree pruner, 
and God called him to be a prophet. Now we might understand why in chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, he got a sneer from a priest. Would you gladly welcome someone without the proper training and pedigree to be your doctor, to be your lawyer, to be a senator? So here he comes, a shepherd. God called me to preach. How does the priest respond? Listen to what Amaziah said, and I'll get more to this when we get to chapter 7. I'm just giving you a preview here. Chapter 7, 12. Amaziah said to Amos, O prophet, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah. You see, he's from Judah, but he's speaking in Israel. Go back to your own country and speak, is what he's saying. And eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. But that never happened. Amos wasn't scared off. He never did go to Judah to prophesy in his own homeland. Basically, if you could help, if it helps you to understand this, you could think of in America, a southerner, right, gets called to um, minister in the American Midwest, southern drawl and everything, right? So he's from Judah, the city of Tekoa, and he was called to go north to Israel to proclaim God's message there. Um, again, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa was about 10 miles southeast of Jerusalem. He was in the southern kingdom of Judah, yet he's called to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel. He also spoke during the same years as Hosea, that we covered two prophets ago, during the 8th century B.C. The time stamp is there in chapter 1, verse 1, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And don't get confused, because sometimes they'll, they'll list out who was king in Judah, and then they'll list out who was king in Israel. It's kind of like saying, during the time of President so-and-so in the United States, and during the time of um, leader so-and-so in another country, we just give the years out. So this is a foreign way for us to, to reference time. It's just a timestamp. The days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So this would be Jeroboam the second who reigned in Israel from 786 to 746 B.C. So it's likely that Amos started prophesying around 750 B.C. Also the mention of the earthquake in verse 1. The earthquake. Anyone know which earthquake we're talking about? (laughs) I mean, this is pretty ancient history, right? It's really difficult. But what's interesting is there's archaeological evidence of an earthquake right during this time. So it all fits and lines up with what we know from history and what we have from God's word. So his audience, again, please note his audience is Israel, the northern kingdom. And Amos prophesied at the same time as both Isaiah and Micah were prophesying in Judah in the southern kingdom. At the same time Hosea was prophesying in the northern kingdom. Then next on your handout you'll see I wrote... um, like a later and greater, um, Luke seven twenty eight, Jesus says the last prophet is greater than all the old prophets, so John the Baptist would be greater, and those who are believers in the New Testament are even greater than John the Baptist, that whole progression of time, Luke seven twenty eight. So when I say later and greater, like a later and greater, also as John the Baptist said in John three thirty, he must increase, I must decrease. The greater the prophet, the more they point to Jesus, right? They don't point to themselves. So we can all focus on the Lord and his word through Amos and don't get distracted by giving any more attention to the man, Amos himself. 
My next line on your handout is the, the uh, writing prophets. Quote, writing prophets, what does all this mean? So you have 16 total writing prophets. The 12 minor prophets are all writing prophets because they wrote these down. We have these 12 books. And also, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, those four, that's the 16. The 12 minor prophets plus Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. I listed it on your handout there. Those are the writing prophets. But what does a writing prophet mean? Also, um, the next line, prophets used to just speak verbally, like Elijah and Elisha. We have some quotes from them in um, Kings, First and Second Kings, but we don't have them writing books, the book of Elijah, the book of Elisha. We don't, they're just verbal prophets, not just, but you know what I'm saying. There's a distinction, those who only spoke and those who spoke and wrote. So when did that happen and why did that change? I want to talk a little bit about that because um, Amos is the first of the writing prophets, so this is a good time to introduce that whole concept. So before this, the prophets, such as Elijah and Elisha, spoke without writing it down. Amos and others, beginning in the 8th century, wrote down also what they spoke verbally. So he's one of and the first of what we call the writing prophets. And why the change from only preaching, then add writing? Well, number one, more written documents were being used in the world at that time. So there's a change in the whole world. At that time, nations started to relate to each other back and forth more and more by using written treaties instead of I'm going to send my assistant and he's going to talk to you and your assistant and your assistant and he will come back and give me word, you know, everything verbally. It started to become written treaties. The whole nation was included in the scope of such treaties. So if a treaty was broken, a royal messenger from the king would be sent with the document to declare the impending judgment on the rebellious people and read from the document and then flesh it out a little bit. So both written and verbal became common for the whole world and its operations. These messengers would come in person to announce the judgment, and they traveled with a written copy along with them of whatever decree or treaty, read it verbally, and then add some of their own words. And a new pattern was being established in the world of how official communication happens. A written document to read aloud to people, and then a fuller verbal explanation. Doesn't that seem like exactly what we do ever since then? But that's how it first took place. And another reason is, along with that, more people in the world began to be able to read. As a result of, uh, there, there's two things that are true. The prophet's sermons could be written down. And then, secondly, later those documents could be redistributed to people who didn't get to hear that message verbally. So if they were there, then they get to also read it later. But even if they weren't there, they get to read it later. So all of these writing prophets have a wider audience than just the people who happen to be standing there. So that whole process helps to understand what we mean by writing prophets. And when did all that happen? Starting around 760 B.C., so about 10 years into Amos's ministry, best we can put together the timeline for him. So it was a time right then of success for Israel and Judah. And what I mean by that is they were enjoying a long time of peace. Peace from each other, peace from attacking nations such as Assyria, Babylon, uh, Moab, Edom. There was less tension, no turmoil. So because a longer time of peace was happening, it 
it, it enabled them to build up prosperity and wealth. When the enemy comes through and burns your fields and kills your cattle, you've got to start over, right? And you're just getting going, and you're getting, the fields are really producing, and all your cattle are reproducing, and they slaughter it all. You know, it kind of brings the, the gross national product down. But if nobody's attacking, nobody's burning, nobody's killing, the gross national product goes up for everybody, all the farms are doing well, and it's agricultural society. Does that make sense? A time of wealth because of a time of peace. So Amos talks about wealth. Thus, you see across the top of your handout, Amos, warning to rich churchgoers. I'm trying to translate it applicable to us. I think there's a lot of parallels to us. We're wealthy. We're one of the wealthiest generations, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. I think we ought to hear what God says through Amos. But Amos is talking to people who are living in wealth. The king at the time in Israel, where he, his audience was, was Jeroboam, as you see listed there, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. But I want you to know it's Jeroboam II, and his years were 793 to 753. So this king, Jeroboam II, reclaimed territory that had been lost since the death of King Solomon 170 years earlier. So why is that significant? Amos is drawing attention to the strong economy resulting from the impact of the conditions socially and morally. They're regaining property. They have stability. Everything is getting stronger. At the same time, there's moral delinquency. Does that sound familiar? I think it's healthy for us to study the prophets, especially these minor prophets, in the times in which we're living. There's similarities. This moral delinquency extended to daily common commercial transactions. In other words, there were scammers. <laughs> there were abusers. There were people conducting business in unethical ways. There were even abuses of religious practices for financial gain. Does that sound familiar? And a perversion of the legal system for money, people were getting rich because they were involved in illicit legal action. I'll give you a quick example now, and then we'll go into this later. Amos 2, verses 6 and following. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver, and they also sell the needy for a pair of sandals. Amos 2.7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Amos 2.6-8, by the way, that when they said lay them down on the garments of pledge, there were people that were so poor that they had to borrow a coat at night to stay warm. And during the day, since they don't own the coat, they had to turn it back in. So if they're at night laying down for illicit prostitutional behavior, they're laying down on coats. Those coats should have been turned back over to the poor overnight. So there's somebody out there without a coat freezing at night while you're doing illicit behavior on that coat as if it were a bed. Do you catch what's being said there? We'll say more about that as we go through. I want you to understand it now. Like many of the prophets, Amos did not just speak and write the way that we normally speak and write. Now I want to talk about poetry. The next line on your handout, Amos wrote in poems. This is highly significant. I'll take a few minutes on this. Amos wrote in poems. Many Old Testament poems use parallelism. What's parallelism? Parallelism. A, comma, what's more B? A, comma, what's more B? That's parallelism. I'm going to explain it. 
with six different kinds. I'm going to go kind of fast. All right. Like many of the prophets, Amos did not just speak and write the way that we normally speak and write in prose. He wrote poems. Where are they? Almost all of chapters 1 to 6 are poetry. Parts of chapter 7 and the start of chapter 8 are written in regular style, which we call prose. But then again, the rest of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9 are poems. So 1 through 6 are poetry. 7 and part of 8 are prose. The rest of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9 are poems. That's a pretty significant part of the book of Amos, so I thought I'd take a moment and explain Old Testament poetry. Poetry appeals to the whole person, which is why the prophets, such as Amos, would use poetry. It's why God would lead them to write his word in poetry. We can just say God is sovereign, holy, and loving. Amen. Let's pray. You got the message, right? He's sovereign, holy, and loving. Or we could open up a theater and do what Hosea did and tell a dramatic story and gives us the message that God is sovereign, loving, and holy in a way that stays with us. Poetry has power. Um, If we present now 12 mini plays to show how God is sovereign, how holy he is, how loving he is despite his people not being holy, and all done in story form. Poetry appeals to us in a more full way. It stimulates our imaginations, it arouses our emotions, it feeds our intellects, it addresses our will, the decisions that we're making. Besides, poetry is pleasant reading. It's just good literature. It's meant to draw us in. The more we know it, the better we, the more we desire it and the better we understand it. However, poems provide two problems. One is it's harder to interpret because there's less precision. For example, in dates, intervals of time, if I were describing to you the history of a certain president in the history of the United States, you'd expect me to give the exact years of his inauguration and when he was finished, the exact years of each of the occasions I'm talking about, right? You have that down to the day. And here, I'm struggling to tell you which century Amos was in. I told you it's around 750, but I can't be certain of it. And rather than that irking you, you should realize that, first of all, it doesn't really matter whether it's this decade or that decade. We get the idea of the general idea. But secondly, it's on purpose. It's poetry. Please pay more attention to the content than to the precision of the dates. So it's harder to interpret. But second problem poetry presents is it's Old Testament poetry. First of all, it's written in Hebrew, so it's Hebrew poetry. But Old Testament poetry adds to the complexity for you because none of you are that old. (laughs) You don't have the history of knowing the things that were happening then. You You didn't live through this time. We have to learn a little bit of the history. We have to understand something of the context. And then we have to understand why the words show up the way they do when they translate them into English. Many features of Old Testament poetry are very different from our English poetry. We just think poetry, oh, I got that, I know poetry, I like poetry. I remember I had poetry in third grade. No, you don't grasp what this Old Testament poetry is like unless you've taken a look at how different it is from all the other poetry you see. So we write and study here in the modern West. This is not modern, and it's not Western. It's very distant from us. So a short explanation. Old Testament poetry is different because I could summarize with one word, parallelism. 
Try saying it to yourself while looking in the mirror later. It's fun. Yes. Parallelism. A, what's more B? So the first part of the poem is followed by the second part of the poem, and the second part of the poem is somehow parallel with the first. Parallel is the lines that go alongside of each other, right? Perpendicular is the ones that cross each other. Parallel, are go, they alongside. So it supports or goes alongside of the previous statement. And to Americans, that automatically feels like unnecessary repeating. You said that already. Get to the point. Right? That's how it strikes us. And if you read through Amos, which I hope you do this week as we'll pick up again next Sunday, Lord willing, with Amos, as you read through the book of Amos, all nine chapters, it'll probably strike you that way. Why is he saying that again? He just said that in the previous line. So we need to understand what's happening in it, and maybe it'll help us to appreciate it rather than recoil a bit. There's six variations of this parallelism that add a lot of meaning. Number one, A and the same thought in B that is more developed. Don't you want things more developed? More developed means more understanding, right? Second example, A and the opposite is B. Sometimes when you say what it's not, it helps you understand what it is. It's a Ford, not a Chevy, if you know what I mean, right? For those who love Fords and don't love Chevys, this sports team, I dare not say a, a sports team name, but this sports team and not that sports team. You have t-shirts that say, I'm for this team and I'm against this team. A, opposite B. That's helpful. Third example, A plus B. So that we're mixing A and B and we end up a new thought, which for your way of math is A plus B equals C. That's more information. So that's helpful. That's all under the idea of parallelism. The fourth example, A, and we compare that with B, Fifth example, A, and simple repeat of B, but the repeating serves to intensify A. It needs to be underlined. It needs to be highlighted. It needs to be put in all caps. And so we're doing that by simple repetition. That's parallelism. Sixth and last example, A, followed by phrase, followed by B, and that phrase goes in the middle goes with A and it goes with B. You catch me? It's a sandwich. You got bread, you got ham, you got bread. When you take a bite, the ham goes with the top half and the ham goes with the bottom half, right? It's maybe a bad example, but you get how the middle thing we're, we're trying to explain is attached to A and it's also attached to B. So the sandwich style can be very intricate and it can develop farther into what we call chiasm. Have you heard of chiasm? part of Old Testament poetry. I'll try to explain that really briefly. Imagine you have a very complicated poem, A, B, C, D, E, followed by E prime, D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. If you ever see that, and there's tons of it in the Old Testament, what you're looking at is an emphasis on E and E prime. That is being highlighted and blasted at you And all the rest is leading up to it and following after it so that you catch the middle. This is what they're trying to say. That is a chiasm, which is a highly developed form of parallelism, which is the sixth variety of A followed by phrase followed by B. And the phrase goes with both A and B. I hope I didn't lose you. That's all I got to say (laughs) on poetry. Why poetry? 
easy answer. It's God's plan to communicate best the information that's in this book. I do have one more illustration because I really need you on board with poetry for this. Two men each come home and say something to their wife. Man A, a prose man. He comes home and says to his wife, I love you. That's it, prose. And he, he just says, I love you. Man B, a poetic man. He comes home and says to his wife, you ready? Honey, I wrote you something. Let me read this to you. Loving in truth and fain in verse my love to show that she, dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. Pleasure might cause her read. Reading might make her know. Knowledge might pity within and pity grace obtain. I sought fit words to paint the blackest face of woe. Studying inventions, fine, her wits to entertain. Oft turning others' leaves to see if thence would flow some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sunburned brain. Sir Philip Sidney's Astrophel and Stella, one quote from an English sonnet sequence that is quite long. I spared you the rest. Which of the two men gets his message from his heart across to his wife's heart the way that he wanted her to receive it? The prose man or the poetry man? You be the judge, but please take my point. <laughs> God, the Holy Spirit, authored the book of Amos, not just with its basic message, but with the form of the message, with the exact way in which it's expressed. So as foreign as it is, as difficult as it might be to grasp, please appreciate that this is God, and so we know it's best and right. Right along with the human author, the man named Amos, it's God who sang something to us. It was his intention to have his word communicated in a form that includes his poetry, that involves at least some level of beauty, at least some level of mystery, and even an element of strangeness. You will see what I mean. Poetry signals to us the strangeness of the book in archaic language, the priority for word pictures or images. Sometimes when we study Jeremiah, I'll say, it's like a slideshow. Here comes the next slide, the next slide. That's kind of how part of Amos reads. Other literary methods are here. The poetry does not get in the way of the message. I wish he would just say what he means. Please don't go there. You go where he's saying it and try to understand what God is saying and how God is saying it and let it move you as a whole person the way that God wants it to move you as a whole person. The poetry does not prevent us from accessing the message. The poetry is part of the message. The poetic form serves to accentuate the message so that we receive the message in the way and manner in which God wanted us to receive it. With some poetry, there are things that are unusual, peculiar, and downright weird. Then you know you're reading Amos correctly. That's just weird. That's okay. It's supposed to strike you that way. That's in the Bible. So Amos 1.1 shows how God communicated the message to Amos. Amos saw the message of God. That's the same verb, the verb saw, that some other prophets used to start off their prophecies. Amos started off with a verbal ministry since that mean priest Amaziah that I read about had referred to what Amos had been saying about the king. By the way, Amos was not distracted from carrying out his role as the Lord's appointed messenger because of the pushback he got from the priest 
Amaziah. We have no further information about Amos as his ministry goes on later. It's not like we start to get a little bit more information. All we got was chapter 7, the fact that he also pruned trees. But we know that the role of Amos is important. He shows what made a man into a prophet of God was not simply some training that could be completed by spending time in a group of prophets as if it were a prophet seminary, a prophet university. Instead, the only thing that mattered in the making of this prophet was God's call to him. In fact, there were times when this prophet appeared on the scene without any forewarning. Amos was certainly called by God, and he preached messages that were similar to other prophets who lived in the same years. They were also called by God, so he's right on the same track. He's saying the same messages. It fits right in. It's not like he said something completely different from Hosea, who's in the same country at the same time, and now we're trying to figure out which is true. No, they both line up. They're both true. That's part of what helps us to confirm the truth of Amos. Um, we also Isaiah and Micah, who were preaching in the south at the same time. It's not surprising that the prophets who lived during the same years, both north in Israel and south in Judah, would cover the same points, but also points in the way that is their own way to cover those points. So Amos kept the king and other leaders accountable to God for their actions in relation to the bond with the Lord, their watchmen over the kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord God, and all the disobedience that he describes is centered on the covenant, the, the covenant of God, the promise of God, that you will be my people and I will be your God, that covenant. <clears throat> so Amos spoke about the God of the covenant, who is God, what's he like, life himself and a life giver, Powerful, redeemer, sovereign, serious about holiness, therefore a judgment. Secondly, Amos will speak about the relationship of God to his people. Uh, the word covenant is not used much in the book, but it's there throughout. He uses different language, but he's always talking about this concept that you're supposed to behave differently because you are the people that belong to God. Then he also speaks about the relationship of God to his people. At what point does God give up on them? He doesn't. But he keeps insisting that they change and repent. Breaking the covenant was done by them living a certain way, and God continued to address them about it. And then fourthly, Amos spoke about where it would all end up in the future. What judgment must therefore come? But what restoration would follow that? Because our God is merciful, and he brings that mercy despite their sin, and despite the judgment that their sin requires. So Amos talks about how it's all going to end up in the future, especially those last verses of the last chapter. Wait till you see that. Please don't stop reading before you get to the end. Those last verses are precious. So that's enough intro. We're ready to dig in. I understand I only have these last minutes, and then next hour, that's perfect. We're right on schedule. We're going through an overview of the book Amos. So we're going to start now. If you look at your outline at the bottom of the page, That'll help orient you a little bit. That's what we're going through. So compared to some other prophets, the structure, the basic structure of the book of Amos, straightforward and easy. Chapters 1 to 2 will be speeches against six countries nearby, followed by speeches against Judah and Israel themselves. Chapters 3 to 6 will be a longer speech against Israel, including the fact and warning that exile is coming. Chapters 7 to 9 will describe five visions of that coming judgment. And then there's a very nice ending, chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. Days of blessing, blessing for Israel, how David's family will be restored, 
and how they'll go home again and what a beautiful, fruitful place it'll be. All right, so go back to Amos 1.1, but don't look down. Look up to me just for a second. Don't look at your Bible, okay? Just, I don't want you to cheat right now. This is a quick little quiz, all right? Hosea 1.1 says the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Joel 1.1 says the word of the Lord that came to Joel. So how do you think Amos begins? You would think it begins the word of the Lord that came to Amos, but that's not how it begins. Now you can look. The words of Amos. What? <laughs> that's kind of interesting. I mean, is that allowed? Is he just a shepherd who didn't get that class, and so he doesn't know how you're supposed to start the book? Oh, is this is an error? So now let me take a moment and describe the beginning of each of the minor prophets, and you'll see how this fits in. Um, let me make you guess. Which other prophet begins just like this? The words of blank and his own name. Anybody? I'll give you a hint what we've been talking about, Jeremiah. Jeremiah begins this way, the, the words of Jeremiah. So it's legitimate. We can say that Amos is legitimate. At least he has one other that did it the same way. But I'll just read to you the other, the other openings. Uh, if you're fast, you can follow, but I'll just read them. Obadiah 1.1, the vision of Obadiah, different form yet. Jonah 1.1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Micah 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Jonah. That's right on par. Nahum 1.1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the visions of Nahum. Habakkuk 1.1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Zephaniah 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. Haggai 1.1, the date first, which is not just like the way we would put 1974. The whole long list of who was king over here and who was king over here. That stuff first. And then, quote, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Zechariah 1.1, that same process. Date first, which is all complicated, listing out the kings. Then... Quote, the word of the Lord that came to the prophet Zechariah. Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Again, the only other prophet that begins just like Amos is Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah. So I like them both. I feel like they're my friends, Jeremiah and Amos. All right, so let's go on forward now. Verse 1. King Jeroboam II, long and successful reign, which means the economy was strong. It's a time of unusual stability, as I mentioned earlier. Both the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah were stable and lived long. No enemies had attacked for a long time. No enemies were currently gearing up to attack. Peace means an increase in wealth. Israel was having a time of economic and materialistic prosperity, such as Israel had never known before. And with the increase of wealth... Leisure became possible. What do people do with free time? Hmm. People say God's blessing the nation, right? Gross national product is up. Money is flowing in. God's blessing us. Isn't that what people always say? God is blessing us. Yes. And that's what the official religion said. God is blessing us. Who's this Amos guy? Some shepherd showed up from Judah in the south telling us we're doing everything wrong it's clear God's blessing us. Look at the money flowing in, right? You see the, the dynamic? I want you to understand the dynamic into which Amos is coming and speaking. The official religion would say God is blessing, and that's popular with the wealthy people. The only problem is they had wealth for the rich only, and that wealth wasn't trickling down to the poor and the wealthy were not thanking God for their wealth. 
They were not serving God with their wealth. If they were serving God, they'd help the poor. And it had a consequence. The religion, which was the Jewish religion, the worship of the Lord God of Israel, had become a religion of the rich who were not in tune with God, and it became a sham. The holy people of God, the people of the covenant, began to practice in a way their religion that was a sham. So God called a shepherd named Amos to speak to the people and start to warn them of God's judgment coming for their unfair business practices, their ripping off of poor people, and the fact that their worship was a joke. It seems like Amos left his flocks and his trees for which he was carrying and started walking north. Excuse me, as soon as he crossed the border from south to north, apparently started preaching right away. As soon as he found a town big enough, he arrived at Bethel first town of any size, and he started preaching. It was significant that it was Bethel, by the way. Let me remind you of the history of Bethel. It was the town at which Amos began to preach, and it was one of the counterfeit places of unauthorized worship. All the people from both north and south used to go south to Jerusalem to worship annually and more. But then, when the split of the kingdom, the king in the north figured, if my people in the north travel south to worship in the established temple in Jerusalem... It will lessen their allegiance to me in the north. So I need worship centers here in the north so they don't have to leave our territory to go worship God. So he has set up several worship stations in the territory of the north. If, if you were to look at the map, one was at the bottom of, the, of Israel, the northern territory, Bethel. So as soon as Amos crossed over from the south to the north, he reached Bethel, where one of the unauthorized worship centers was. And the other was all the way at the top of Israel in the north named Dan, another worship center, false worship center there. The king placed a false or golden calf at each location and told the people to worship at these locations. Originally, it was supposed to be that God was present above the calf. It it was a good idea, but ill-founded because God had never told him to do that. In fact, God told him not to do it. So this is exactly what God had told them not to do. Sacrifices were only to be made in Jerusalem in the south. There were to be no golden calves. There were to be no shrines. There would be no false places of worship, no high places, as they called them. It was outright disobedience to God and therefore had predictable evil results. The people stopped caring for right living before God. If they don't need right worship, they don't need right living. If they don't need right living, they don't need to share their wealth with the poor. In fact... They went so far as to start taking advantage of the poor still further to make another buck, which is, you know, what we call scams. What does God have to say to them through Amos? Here he arrives across the border uh, days ago, moments ago, he was a shepherd, and now he arrives as a newly minted prophet. He arrives in Bethel, and this is what's going on. What does he say? First words out of Amos. Freeze frame. Have you ever heard a lion roar? Probably you've visited a zoo, and you're just minding your own business. You're with other people, and all of a sudden, right, this roar lets out. You're you're three animal houses away, and you're kind of shuddered down your spine, right? A a lion roars. That's the first thing he says. Verse verse 2, Amos 1, verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. 
I'm going to spend more time here because the kickoff is important to understand, and you'll get the rest of it as it flows, the details, but I want you to understand how this kicks off. It's important to understand the book. It startles you when a lion roars. These people were spiritually asleep, if not worse. It's genuinely frightful. It instantly wakes you up. It causes a lot of adrenaline. It puts a chill up and down your spine. This is even when you know a lion is nearby. (laughs) You knew there was a lion two houses over. You just saw him or you're going to see him. He's behind thick glass. You have really nothing to fear. But it still startles you down to your fight or flight mechanism. Amos says, the Lord roars from Zion. It's a perfect poetic image. And it's supposed to strike him that way. Whole person say, wait, I thought we were in good with God. Money's flowing. God's blessing. What do you mean the Lord roars? You mean we had this all wrong? And if only they had ears to hear, they would be undone with the first phrase. It's the word of God through Amos, after all. Now, several Old Testament prophets write about God roaring before judgment because that's what a lion does. It roars before it attacks, even after it attacks and has its prey. God is sending Amos somehow like a lion to attack. Amos, remember, was a shepherd. (laughs) So that's kind of how his mind works as well. So it's consistent with who he is. It's consistent with who God is. They're both the authors of this part of Scripture, the um, authors of the verbal message. So it's interesting that the very first prophetic verse presents a scene of shepherds in in a pasture, if you look at the whole verse, with sheep, and the attack from a roaring lion, and the roaring lion is the Lord God. Before a lion attacks the sheep, he gives his roar. So here, before God judges the people, he gives his roar. The Lord roars. You realize, those of you that studied Joel with me recently, Joel 3.16 is identical. You can take your minute now and compare. Joel 3.16, Amos 1.2, they're identical. Rather than Zion or Jerusalem being a place of safety, as you might expect, it's a place where the judgments of God originate from the true place of worship, the center of worship where it should be, Jerusalem, not from Bethel, not from Dan, but from Jerusalem is the place where the judgments of God originate, where the roaring comes from. It's a poetic way of saying, this is where the holy God resides. Remember me? The one that you haven't come to truly worship in a long time because you've been off there at Bethel and off there at Dan, stuff I never authorized? I'm roaring from over here where I said I would be. You see how it all fits? And it's shocking how the message that God sends Amos to give is given to the people of Israel, but we don't get to the judgments about Israel for a couple countries yet. He starts, the first one is Damascus. So he kind of goes around and then gotcha, like that. But it's, it's interesting that Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4.17, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And we want our country to change. We have to admit that the first thing we have to do is have ourselves change before our country will change. The use of the Lord God's covenant name here in Amos 1 verse 2 is also significant. The Lord roars, that's his covenant name covenant name of God is a reminder, right off the top, a reminder 
that despite the rebellion of the people, despite the idolatry of the people, God had not yet cast them off. When he says his covenant name, what he means by that is, I am your God and you are my people. Right? He's not disowning them. He's confronting them. And so the covenant name is significant here. On the other hand, a reminder that God was roaring is quite a warning from your covenant God that what you're doing is not acceptable. Judgment is being announced, but it can still be diverted. Let me explain how. Right? It's a call to repentance. And one of the problems with religion, I, I'm going to uh, wrap up with this because we have to stop for today. One of the problems with religion in the northern kingdom of Israel was that it was conducted at these false shrines. And so the, the locations of Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba and Dan. Um, so, as I've already said, please note the place from which the Lord roars is Jerusalem. But also notice, within verse 2 there, God's judgment will extend from the worst farmland all the way to the best. The wonderful soil at the top of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was the very high peak, and the winds would blow across and bring moisture, and it was a very green, fertile area. The best farms, which yield the best fields for cattle grazing. But what's the condition of Carmel under God's roaring judgment? The top of Carmel withers. Oh boy, if the top of Carmel's going to wither, what about the rest of the country? Wake up, all people of Israel. God is not pleased with what you've been doing. It's a call to repentance. So the book of Amos begins with a strong warning. And as I close, I just have to remind you, thankfully, the book of Amos ends with a gracious promise. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. What a stark contrast from the start of the book to the end of the book. Here, Amos 1-2, pastures mourning top of a notable landmark of green pastures will lose its lush vegetation and wither. Meanwhile, at the very end of the book, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall plant vineyards. They shall make your gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. Not just plant plants. I will plant them on their land, says the Lord your God. Beautiful transition from the start to the end. Of course, it points us ahead to the Messiah himself, the only way by which God's judgment could become God's restoration and blessing to us. See how it fits with the whole theme of prophets? Fits with what we've been studying in Jeremiah. So all the prophets line up. Same message uh, from God. Judgment unto restoration. Points us to Christ in our good gospel message. So next week, I invite you to please read the book of Amos before uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. We'll pick up from there and do an overview summary of the, the themes, the content of the book of Amos. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, how we thank you for 